Today's episode is brought to you by McLean Middleton, providing trusted legal services to businesses throughout the region for over 100 years. As a special episode this week, we're going to share tidbits from New Hampshire Business Review's annual mid-year review webinar, which was held virtually earlier this month. You'll hear from a panel of experts provide their perspectives on the state of New Hampshire's economy, including topics on inflation, workforce shortages, strongest and weakest sectors, and the condition of the economy as we move into the rest of 2023. The panel is moderated by New Hampshire Business Review's editor, Jeff Feingold. Enjoy! Hi, welcome to our New Hampshire Business Review's 2023 Mid-Year Economic Review. It's our annual look at what the heck's going on in the economy in New Hampshire and beyond. Uh, we have a wonderful uh, two pair, two guests who are just going to be great, and uh, we want to thank you for, for taking part. I also want to remind the audience that we are more than happy to take questions, and you can put it in the uh, in, in the chat section there on the bottom of your screen if you want to we will be checking those we will be checking those uh uh, uh comments questions all all through the uh the uh discussion and we'd be happy to share them with the, with the panelists anyway what i'd like to do is welcome our two panelists there brian gottlob who's a director of new hampshire economic and labor market information bureau and we also have liz elizabeth salas who's the president and chief compliance officer of her own Kayena Capital Management, an independent registered investment firm. And she's also the business recovery manager now for the Center for Women Enterprise in New Hampshire, which is really a lot on her plate. So we welcome her to our, to our discussion today. And what I'd like to do is give each of our, our panelists about a few minutes just to give us their overview of what's going on. Then we can get into a deeper discussion. So Liz, uh, I'd like you to come up and let us hear what you have to say. Thank you for the lovely introduction, Jeff. Um, and just for a couple of administrative updates, I am the um, business advisor with the Regional Economic Development Center, the REDC in Raymond, um, where I have um, paused with needing to do PPP and idle applications as a COVID uh, program manager with the Center for Women and Enterprise. So along with operating Guyana Capital Management that is a registered investment advisor, I'm also um, the business advisor, one of them at the REDC, um, and then I have a second business, Guyana Econ Lab. Um, but thank you again for the opportunity to attend. I believe that this is the third panel discussion on the state of the economy that I participated alongside you, Jeff and Brian. Um, so I anticipate that it'll be a robust discussion as always. Um, so my tone for the past couple has been a very uh, negative from a sense of the economics, um, particularly if we go back to 2018, where we had a recession in agriculture, and then we have the pandemic that really put us in a significant lull in recessionary pressure globally, as well as locally here in New Hampshire. We're sitting in a very interesting um, point where we've seen rates um, accelerate significantly um, over the past 18 months um, and the Fed is actually going to be releasing their point or their minutes um, at two o'clock this afternoon. Um, so right now we're seeing real rates at around eight percent. Um, we're seeing um, mortgages 30-year fixed at around seven to seven and a half. We don't anticipate the rates are going to come down as quickly as they went up pretty much um, for the reason that we didn't see market adjustments from 2010 through 2020. So when we started to see the increases in rates, the idea was, hey, the Fed was a little late to the party. Perhaps we needed to increase rates sooner. And now we're waiting for, and we are seeing some of the, um, the responses to those rate hikes. So we're seeing layoffs across companies. Um, we're seeing economic slowdown, which is in fact entirely what the purpose of the Fed hikes are for and were for, which is to cool an overheating economy and to slow the pace of growth and allow for markets to essentially catch up, which in corporate spiel, what that means is allows for businesses to do layoffs, to reconcile their balance sheets, 
and also perhaps manage their debt service. So if they're uh, paying interest at a higher rate, which most corporations are, what options are there to refinance? And that's where we're seeing some of the burn economically, where we are seeing businesses that have closed, um, particularly in hospitality um, and in uh, restaurant and in other service industries. Um, and that is predominantly given the high increase in prices over across the supply chain and across industries. So when it comes to the cost of food, um, when it comes to the cost of energy, the cost of housing, and then never mind commercial real estate, um, those are all in multiples have increased, which has caused for a lot of businesses to have to close their, their doors. And I, and I know that there's about six to eight in the city of Nashua that have had to close um, and a few more in Manchester, unfortunately. And that is due to the um, cost of labor where we've had some individuals that have gone from paying $15 an hour to have to pay $30 an hour. And then when it comes to the cost of, let's just say grain, um, given the war in Ukraine, um, where they're one of the major suppliers in the market, the global market, um, we're seeing uh, a, really a lot of those responses be catastrophic across small businesses. Um, now we saw CPI come out yesterday at 4%, that was trending a little bit lower um, and anticipated um, with the market now, um, we had the PPI that came out also. Um, the Fed looks at PCE, so that's due to come out on the 30th of June. Um, now, I do anticipate uh, that the Fed will most likely raise rates um, by a quarter of a percent, 25 basis points, 25 bips, whatever language you want to use, and to keep pace with their forecasts. Uh, now, the anticipation is that they will pause towards the end of the year, um, and we are seeing the market factor in um, some expansion and some recovery um, based on market prices. So, for instance, uh, the NASDAQ is up about close to 30% year to date. We're seeing the Dow a little bit flat um, with the S&P up around 15 So. Certainly, we're seeing um, some of the changes um, when it comes to businesses being able to, or they have been laying off and then readjusting their balance sheets. And so and this is an area that many times tends to create some challenges for individual investors, where we're seeing the economics kind of fall apart, but we're seeing the market continue to go up. Um, and so we can see this presented in 2009, 2008, um, where when a lot of these Fed decisions were made, that's when there was, uh, it was for this outcome. And so it was for the outcome of, you know, reducing um, the high cost of labor and getting products to market. Um, now, a major um, concern in the market in general is commercial real estate, where that has been under recessionary pressures for the past 12 months. And we do continue to see pressure going forward um, as inventory is still a major challenge with very low supply and increasing demand, um, particularly for businesses that are needing to operate, needing space. Um, the cost is just very significant. So there are a lot of businesses that haven't even been able to launch or even been able to operate or move forward um, because they're not able to find a location or they're paying such a significant price in their lease um, that they're failing. And so they're having to close their doors. So that's what we're seeing locally. Um, and many times these were leases that were negotiated from a two to three year time frame, and they're coming due now. And so where the market conditions are, these businesses simply just can't afford the lease. And so um, their debt service coverage ratios are coming in south of one and sometimes even negative. So they can't carry that if they don't have enough revenues to cover their operational expenses. So hence a lot of these decisions to just close the door. So that's what we're seeing now, despite what we're seeing in the quote unquote stock market. Um, and with that also being supportive of the high energy prices, which it just depends on what side of the trade you're on, meaning that if you're investing and you're holding these investments in your portfolio for the longer term, then of course you're, you're probably pretty happy because you're seeing these increases 
However, if you're needing to pay for the services in terms of energy and some of these products, then of course you're, you're dealing with those inflationary pressures on the other end, um, which isn't a good thing. Um, and so I'll pause here. Um, I'm at about five minutes, so I don't want to take up too much time and I don't want to get the hook off the stage, um, but certainly I'll, I'll pass it on to, to Brian for his input and thoughts. Or Jeff, I don't know. Are we going? <laughs> okay, yeah. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, uh, Liz and uh, Brian. If you can join us, that'll be great. We could hear your Happy. take on things. Happy to do it. Always a pleasure to be a part of this, Jeff. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I will share my screen if that's okay. I am genetically incapable of talking about numbers in the economy without showing some pictures. Um, the other thing is, is that I do not expect anybody to believe anything I have to say unless I can show them how I came to those conclusions. So I'm hoping you can see my screen here. I'm going to give you kind of an overview of, of where I think the economy is right now at, at mid-year. First, um, it's stronger than I had expected. It's stronger than I had, had forecast early in January. I will take not quite a bow yet, um, but early in this year, I said I did not think we were going to be in recession in 2023. I think increasingly it's looking like we will remain recession-free in 2023, but there are significant risks in 2024. Um, one thing's clear, confidence in the economy is low. Consumers, business confidence is low, but there's a big difference between how consumers and how businesses are saying they feel about the economy and what they're actually doing. Inflation, Liz mentioned this, uh, inflation is moderating and I expect that will continue to slide in throughout 2023. Um, we won't get back to where the Fed wants to be, but we're getting closer. The labor market is really the shining star of this economy. It remains re resilient. It's especially strong in New Hampshire with really exceptional labor demand. We are somewhat labor constrained and a little bit more labor constrained than the nation as a whole. Um, and overall, without large job losses, and by the way, New Hampshire's job losses in terms of filings for unemployment and regular weekly payments, they're, they've been 30 to 40% below they, where they were in 2019 prior to the pandemic, which was a very strong year for the labor market. So we're 30 to 40% below that. So without losses, big job losses, and without reductions in consumer spending, um, a recession is really hard to see uh, imminently. Um, there was a lot of concerns about banks with the failure of SBVB and Signature. Um, and some others, but banks overall are well capitalized. And I've analyzed banks in New Hampshire, and I can tell you that I think they're especially strong, which bodes well. Um, always, on the other hand, uh, credit availability is clearly starting to contract. Um, survey done by the Fed of, of uh, senior loan officers indicates that, that lending standards have been tightening, terms have been tightening. Um, so we're seeing some of the of the effects of the of the banking situation. And that will have an impact um, and slow the economy. And it will do as much, I believe, for slowing the economy as anything that the Federal Reserve does in terms of interest rate rises. And I'm a believer that the Fed will not um, have another 25% basis point. One of us will be right. Um, increasingly, again, um, this is one of the areas that I think is most problematic. Main Street businesses are struggling. Uh, Liz mentioned some of that. Um, they're struggling with higher costs, material costs, labor shortages, particularly hitting smaller businesses because bigger businesses have the ability to compete more effectively with wages and benefits. And now credit conditions, um, which uh, generally have a greater impact on, on smaller businesses uh, when credit conditions tighten. So I do think job growth is going to slow, but end 2023 at twice the growth rate that I had forecast earlier this year. So it's still going to be a, a relatively strong year, certainly in the labor market. Um, but again, there's many threats to prosperity in 2024. Um, so we'll, we've in some ways pushed recession concerns out into that year. Um, I mentioned um, that, I, that job growth is slowing, but it's still really high. This is a... a a measure of private sector job growth. I focus on the private sector um, job growth because that's really what's happening in the in the e economy. New Hampshire, the red line. New, the U.S., the black line. 
2021, New Hampshire had significantly faster, higher job growth. It slowed um, more in 2022 than the nation because we faced greater labor force constraints. But it is slowing more rapidly in the U.S. than it is in New Hampshire. But still, those are really solid job growth rates. And New Hampshire has really evened out. It's, it's really not falling that much. We are able to hire people, surprisingly, even with our very tight labor market. Um, Liz mentioned inflation rate. This is just a, a, a graphic that shows what's happened to uh, overall CPI inflation. It's down to 4%. I think it'll be down closer to 3% by the end of 2023. And that's getting close to where the Fed wants it to be. And, you know, 4%, even at 4%, much different impact on businesses and households and individuals than at 9%. So moving in the right direction. And here's a really big one. You know, um, consumers, despite being less optimistic and indicating that they don't have a lot of confidence, are still spending. This is a broader measure of spending than just retail spending. Retail spending is spending on goods. This includes spending on services. And it's real spending. It's inflation adjusted. And that's been running over 2%. And that's pretty solid. And when you add in the fact that wages have risen and now are rising faster than the inflation rate, which means real incomes are growing. That bodes well for continued consumer spending. And again, when consumers are spending and there are not massive layoffs, then it's hard to see a recession in the, in the cars. This is a, a, a metric that just shows what I call the unfilled job openings rate. Again, New Hampshire, the red line. And it's the difference between the job openings rate, which has been consistently between six, seven and a half percent and the hiring rate, which has been four to four and a half percent. So that delta, that difference is kind of a measure of how tight the labor market is. And, and this really shows that New Hampshire has had a tighter labor market um, and has been more labor constrained. If we weren't that labor constrained, um, I think the New Hampshire economy would be adding jobs at a much faster rate, even though it's still a solid growth rate. And this last just compares all 50 states in terms of how far they've come back from the depths of the recession um, or pre their pre-COVID level of private employment. And I just show this because New Hampshire, far and away leading our region, states that have had faster job growth since prior to the recession are all states that didn't have the kind of uh, shutdowns um, to control the COVID um, uh, virus that New Hampshire and much of the Northeast did, but we really are a standout in the Northeast. We've been a standout. I would argue we're a standout in our labor market nationally. Um, I think that will continue. We're managing to buck some of the headwinds that have occurred in the economy nationally, and I expect that we'll continue to do that. And with that, I will stop sharing my screen, hopefully stop sharing, and turn back over to Jeff. Thank you very much, Brian. I appreciate both of your presentations. You know, I, I was saying this, if you guys want to join us again, that'll be nice. <laughs> but I, I was saying that what uh, early before we do in the uh, prep call, the uh, we could talk about what's just in the headlines. And I know you guys have touched on them in your, in your presentations. Uh, but, you know, today we have the meeting of the Fed where you know we we're expecting probably that they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna stand pat for now, but the other thing is that the number yesterday for the C like you both said the CPI was four percent, but I understand that a lot of that four percent the drop to four percent is driven by the by the more volatile drops we've seen in the in the more volatile uh, energy and food right. areas. Right. And something that's called core inflation, right? Over five percent. Right. So, if one of you would like to take a chance of explaining this in about a minute, <laughs> what core inflation is, as opposed yeah. to CPI? Yeah, core inflation just looks to strip away those items um, in the consumer price index that tend to be more volatile, that change fairly rapidly. Energy being Number one, gasoline prices, we know, go up and down. They go up and down regularly throughout the year, depending on the on the season. But they're also subject to wide swings based on um, international oil markets. Um, food is affected 
largely food prices are largely affected by energy prices. Most of what we purchase in a grocery store is shipped by trucks. So when energy prices rise, it always has an impact on on food uh, food prices. So um, you're right, Jeff. What had been occurring um, until fairly recently is that the core CPI had been lower than than overall CPI. This month we've got a, a reversal of that. Um, but I, you know, the CPI is much more complex than we generally let on. Um, you know, people shift what they purchase based on prices. So if inflation is running at 5%, it doesn't mean that we're all paying 5% more. Um, when the price of beef goes up, I buy less beef and more chicken. So it doesn't necessarily mean I'm paying 5% more for everything. People shift. And unfortunately, the CPI doesn't, it only adjusts the basket and the mix of, of goods. It used to do it every two years. Now it only does it every one year. The benefit of the PCE, which is the personal consumption expenditure index, which Liz mentioned, the Fed pays attention to, is that they adjust what people buy on a monthly basis. Hmm based on prices. So as prices rise in one thing, people buy less of it, buy more of what is a lower cost. And that tends to run the PCE a little bit lower. And it, in fact, it has been running lower. Hmm. Right. And also um, what was in the CPI report was the real earnings summary as well, which did show an increase of earnings of 0.2% um, in net positive for the first time since March of 2021. Hmm. So we've been running net negative when it comes to earnings, wage increases and, and such. Uh, so that is very paramount to the strength in areas of the economy that Brian had mentioned. And so when we consider inflation, um, to, to his point, is that we were looking at various um, aspects and variables that go into the calculation, not just the energy and food. And so, um, you know, one part of that CPI report was that earning summary. And so that is um, reaffirming the effects of inflation and, and increasing operational costs for corporations and small the, business. The other key aspect of that report is if you divide up the items in it between goods, you know, actual physical things that you purchase and services, goods inflation year over year was only 2%. Mm -hmm. Services was 6.6%. And one of the reasons why that is, is that wages have been increasing and services incorporate a much larger percentage of the cost is in wages and salaries. So, um, you know, so if you're looking to buy something, you know, a present, um, you know, something for your home, the prices have, you know, have really stabilized. And that's mm -hmm. largely because supply chains have gotten much uh, started to repair. So you know, it was during the pandemic when people had didn't spend any money on services because you couldn't, you couldn't dine out, you couldn't travel. Um, and they spent a lot of, uh, of their earnings on goods. Supply chains were disrupted and the price of all goods was bid up. But right now we're seeing a real divergence between goods and service price increases. Yeah, I, I have a question, a first question from the audience. And I think it's it very much related to what we're discussing, discussing talking about uh, you know, food inflation. This question is, when does the panel see food inflation starting to subside? There has been a lot of information about companies taking advantage of Main Street through greedflation. <laughs> How much longer will companies price greedily versus genuinely passing along costs to consumers? That's a lot to uh, uh, unwrap, unwrap there, but I, I do understand there's been charges that a lot of companies are padding their 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 prices taking advantage of the of the inflationary uh, environment so does anyone there want to either of you you guys want to take a shot at this one yeah so i can start um so when we look at the price increases and in markets from a global perspective we know that there's basic essentials that every human needs to survive and that includes food, that includes water, that includes shelter. And so when we have growth cycles and business cycles, many times the prices that become incorporated through the cycle, such as the rise in housing values, those become the new support levels 
for the market. And then from there, we start to see prices go up. And so as Brian alluded to some of the downward uh, swings in some food prices, we saw, I think it was like the highest price of eggs during the, the pandemic in the past um, 18 months. So the anticipation that there's going to be a reduction in prices across the board on food is very unlikely. Um, as we start to substitute for certain products, whether that be eating more chicken or maybe perhaps more vegetarian items, um, for whatever reason, um, there's going to be premiums that are placed to adjust on the creation and the manufacturing and the production to market on those products, particularly if we are seeing increased labor um, force and, and other expenses. Um, so I, I would be, um, I would find it very unlikely for prices to come down significantly across all baskets. I would find that as they're getting substituted as humans and households substitute for products based on their own needs and desires, um, that will go ahead and impact. And there's going to be some um, discretionary assets that are purchased that are going to be based on personal demand, not so much essentials. So there's going to be, you know, and that's where we're seeing that the high credit, consumer credit at the highest rate, uh, where people are still buying and consuming. Um, so they're going to do, we're, we're going to do what we're going to do. Um, however, it's not going to be until there's um, a need and there's going to, there's some folks that need meat to survive or they can't eat chicken or whatever. So they're going to have to deal and adjust with those price increases. But I, I would find it very unlikely, um, particularly as we're seeing, um, again, the reliance on grain and other um, commodities that are coming out of Ukraine and Europe that are being um, pinched due to the war and other um, geopolitical issues that we can't control and some treaties that are being renegotiated and such. And so that's all based on products and it is all based on um, net imports and exports and, and I guess you could say capitalism because there needs to be enough production which is what values the, the growth of an economy um, through GDP and so we don't want those figures to be net negative based on what we're producing in the U.S. I would say uh, I'm a capitalist uh, I believe in largely the efficiency of markets I don't see greed as operating for very long um, you know companies and organizations that try to raise prices above a certain level will be undercut eventually. So I don't see greedflation as being a driving force in what's happening with, with uh, inflation right now. Okay. What what about something like shrinkflation? You know, when they talk about when, when you know, <laughs> you've gone, you know, you, instead of raising the price, they're yeah. gonna give you, yeah. you know, a smaller candy bar. What about what yeah. about that? No, that's, that's, that's been that's, happening. Yeah, that's happening. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> no, you and, can, you can know, use look, a McDonald's. Businesses that, businesses have had their costs increase, their product prices, you know, the materials have increased in price. Um, they could pass that on. Um, personally, I would rather they passed it on directly and I paid more for a price than, than see uh, my quart of ice cream shrink as it has over the last <laughs> several years, which is very disappointing. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, I get, you know, it, it, it's an effort to maintain profitability profit margins have been good they are start they, you know they are coming down corporate yeah. profits are are coming down um coming down pretty significantly um but uh again um you know i don't see it as at, at so much as greed as an up as as um companies looking to maintain their their profitability and you know we're look all looking to keep our wages at a certain level businesses are look, looking to keep their revenue and their profitability at a certain level that's right. And if I could add, um, there's always going to be arbitrage opportunities, which is what brings business into market. So um, if there's an opportunity to deliver a better service or product, and I'll use like, you know, DoorDash, where during the pandemic, with a lot of folks not being safe or comfortable with leaving their home, we saw an increase in the use of these services that weren't and Instacart and all of these things and stores incorporating. So those are all arbitrage opportunities where companies are able to charge based on a service that wasn't being provided to take advantage of the market conditions. Mm -hmm. And so that's not necessarily greed, that is just an opportunity. And so when it comes to the impact and the feeling, which we don't control anybody's feelings um, and somebody may feel as though it's being greedy, but again, as, as also a capitalist, I look at that as opportunities. And so um, certainly 
when we consider the um, cost of debt service, the cost of salaries, the cost of products, a business may not have any alternatives other than to increase prices. And so I use McDonald's again as, an, as a for instance, where you can get a happy meal and it costs you like $10 where it used to cost you like five. And at the same time, there's only one person working and the system's been automated. And I use Wendy's as another, for instance, as a competitor, where you can go into a Wendy's and you don't talk to a human. Mm. Uh, there's a human in the kitchen, but you're literally punching in your order to a computer. And then at that point, any modification. So you're doing the work and the labor for the business and what they've done to sustain and provide that meal or service to the market or product is they've gone ahead and used technology to reduce their labor costs and then based on the increases in products to keep the quality or whatever their standards are. Um, but again, um, that I wouldn't say that that's, that's greed. I would say that those are arbitrage and opportunities for the market. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. McLean Middleton is one of New England's premier full-service law firms, with headquarters in Manchester, New Hampshire, and offices in Concord and Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and Woburn in Boston, Massachusetts. McLean Middleton has over 100 attorneys in five locations and has been providing trusted legal services to businesses throughout the region for over 100 years. A full-service law firm with practice areas in corporate, tax, employment, litigation, trusts and estates, energy and environment, intellectual property and privacy, and data security, to name just a few. McLean Middleton's commitment to their clients, community, and colleagues has helped them to establish and maintain long-standing relationships as trusted advisors. Whether you are starting your business, growing your business, or preparing to sell your business, McLean Middleton has the experience to guide you through the complexities of the legal system. For a complete listing of their practice areas, attorneys, and locations, visit www.mclane.com. You know, I have to, I have to say that you mentioned this about uh, the labor, and I wanted to get to this next. The next headline was the unemployment rate in New Hampshire, which hit a historic low of 1.9%, which is just remarkably low we've been we've been in the two percent range for many many years and you know even decades in a way so but it seems to me that that is so low that it's if i was an employer i would be having you know agita as they say i mean it just really uh, gotta be concerning yeah so what, what are your takes on it yeah no no doubt about it um you know, and I spend time talking with businesses. Um, one of the things that I say to them is, yeah, that that low unemployment rate scares you. There aren't many businesses that haven't had some difficulty in meeting their labor uh, needs. Um, but I also look at the participation rate in the labor force among different demographics and different age groups. And what I see, Jeff, is a lot of people still on the sidelines. Mm -hmm. You know, there we have not gotten back um, unlike the U.S., we have not gotten back to our pre-pandemic levels of labor force participation, particularly among younger individuals and older individuals. Older individuals, largely health issues, some took early retirement. They've started to come back, some of them, unretiring. Um, but where we're problematic in New Hampshire, especially, has been in the younger individuals. And, um, you know, I think they have, they're doing something in order to get earn earn money mm. um, but i don't think it's traditional a lot of it's not traditional w2 wage um, and salary employment that employers count on so my message is um, hang in there we're working hard to get people to get back into the labor force or get back more into traditional you know um, forget being uh, an influencer or somebody who makes money on youtube you know, go to work uh, because that looks good when you're 24 years old, Jeff. But when you're 30 and you got a family and kids and maybe a, and trying to get a mortgage, it doesn't look so good. So um, it's it is problematic. But the, here's the fact: we added 17,000 jobs last year, Jeff, in New Hampshire. So we are adding jobs. So mm -hmm. I don't know how we're doing it, 
um, but we are doing it. We are more labor constrained. We would have a larger or greater job growth if more of those folks did come back, but we're still adding jobs. We're still able to add jobs, just not as many as, as we could. Yeah. No, I, 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 it's interesting because it, it's, it's something that we, I just, as Liz mentioned, this is the third one we've done where I think, I, I don't even know how many we've talked about it and we've done, we, and ever, and actually I, I just to give a shameless plug, you know, we, we, the, in the publication, the business review, we do a, an in-depth article on, on the economy every, at the mid year. Yeah. And it's like upcoming in the next issue of the paper, which comes out on Friday. And that's, that's really still after year after year after year it's like a rerun that's the major concern of employers in the state and it seems like it's it's preventing some of them from expanding from growing and and it might even be you know preventing them some people from just even deciding to to come to new hampshire you know try to start a business or open a, a branch but you know that's another discussion we, we could talk about that for like five hours but look we've got new balance moving in you know yeah. looking to build a facility fidelity is looking to hire i think it, the impacts jeff are differential i think it's hurting main street more than it is hurting some of these larger firms um, again they have the resources and the wherewithal to offer the kinds of work environment and pay scales and benefits um, that allow them to capture more of the available labor. So it's really, from my perspective, more constraint on on Main Street businesses. Yeah, and that seems to be uh, very evident of the cycle as well, where we tend to see you know big, bigger businesses that can absorb some of the increasing costs, whether that be inflationary or market um, demand or low demand or such, whatever. Um, but when it comes to employment, we've also seen in New Hampshire a lot of businesses that have started. So a ton of startups that have come through and those are that younger demographic um, that are um, essentially um, kind of balking back at the larger institutions and the corporate environment, particularly given the, in the pandemic and the autonomy that was allowed in terms of just managing some of the other leisurely activities that these individuals um, are incorporated in and so um, are involved in. So. It'll be interesting, and this is where I, I tend to foresee the Fed increasing rates again, uh, because it needs, to, and this is the purpose of it, is to really cool the heating economy, but also to bring some of these folks off the sidelines that maybe can't self-sustain and need some other supplemental income or such, and that's going to bring them into these areas Um of corporate environments where they need um, perhaps benefits or they're thinking of starting a family or maybe they're not, you know, trying to live with their parents or whatever it is. Um, but certainly um, housing is, is a huge effect on that, where if somebody's going to make a salary of, um, you know, $50,000 in an entry level position at New Balance, you know, that's not going to even be able to cut them a night out on the town when you net everything out. Um, so, you know, certainly there's a delicate dance that I think is happening generationally um, when it comes to the corporate environment. Yeah, you know, you, you touched on this somewhat, Liz, and, and I also have a question for the audience that's also along the lines of this. One of the things that we've seen over the years is in keeping employees on the sidelines, former employees, you know, because COVID really did a number on everything, uh, is the housing situation. And also, and I know you've talked about this, Brian, the childcare situation, having availability of affordable childcare. And that's actually one, one of the questions from, from, from uh, the audience is about what role does lack of affordable childcare play in keeping the younger workforce on the sidelines? And I would also add that that's true of, of the housing as well, in terms of you know, keeping, keeping people from even coming to New Hampshire to, to look for opportunities. So what what is your, what are your takes on that? That's a real the housing issue may be the number one issue that we're dealing with right now, Jeff. When you look traditionally at New Hampshire, how our labor force grows, particularly the quality of the labor force, we import a lot of talent. You know, I say this all the time. New Hampshire's kind of a beacon. We keep a lot of people from the northeast moving to the south and the west because that's where <laughs> the demographic trends are. You know, people are moving to the south and to the west, but New Hampshire has been able to capture uh, a lot of those people who would otherwise move it in that direction. And we saw a big uptick of that during the pandemic. Um, unfortunately, 
you know, and I, I have a graph for everything, uh, looking at household formations in the state versus, you know, res residential housing units, um, there's a huge mismatch. You know, we started before the pandemic about 20,000 units below where we needed to be based on household formation, based on population growth. Um, and we've added to that since then. So uh, without that, we are constrained. We're seeing it now. I'm seeing it in the migration numbers that were really high and are, are inching down because people can't find a place to live. The child care issue is one where, by my estimate, we probably keep somewhere on the order, and this is a pretty big number, somewhere between eight and 10,000 people who otherwise would like to be working on a regular basis out of the labor force. And that's based on the number of people who have children who indicate they're not in the labor force because um, they don't have uh, either, a, they don't have a child who's in school or has in daycare. Um, so it's a significant uh, number, both of those issues. Um, you know, we really have to address, you know, if I were to, the child care issue is particularly perplexing because you, in order to expand capacity, you have to raise prices to get people to work in the industry to do that. Then you you increase the cost to make it unaffordable for a group of people. That's a particularly vexing problem. The housing issue is one that we should be able to solve more readily. Um, we haven't, and it's been a problem for probably two, you know, two to three decades. Um, the last time we had a lot of building was in the late 80s and, and early 90s. Um, so until we get those straightened out, we're gonna operate at a suboptimal, um, from my perspective, job growth. I agree, yeah, absolutely. And childcare is um, massive to the expansion of any economy and the ability to have full um, labor force participation um, where there is a massive challenge with childcare in the state where there are not uh, only enough facilities um, for providers, but certainly um, enough individuals that are wanting to go into the industry, which rightfully so, and Brian alluded to this, to the lower wages to provide the service of childcare. And then when we include the wage uh, labor licensing operations. And we've had some uh, in, in the state, some daycares that have actually gone under um, because they couldn't afford to, to keep everything going and they didn't have enough labor. So um, that's, it's, it's a really unfortunate situation and environment that we're in right now when it comes to childcare, because not only are we seeing facilities close because of the operating expenses, but we're only seeing demand increase. Yes. And so we are in an environment where many households require a dual income in order to sustain their household living expenses. And so one of the substitutes or trans trade-offs that's happening is, well, if we would be paying, you know, 40 to 50,000 a year to get two kiddos into daycare, well, then what's the purpose of having both of us working? and also knowing who's caring for the child. Um, and so there's there's a couple of things happening, but I, um, as Brian stated, I just don't see this issue being resolved anytime soon. And, and I don't see that um, contributing to any type of positive outcome um, at all in growth. I, I think it's gonna continue to be a challenge until we can figure out how childcare providers can earn a living wage, for lack of a better term, while also providing a service. And that's where individuals that have enough disposable income or make enough money that they can afford childcare in a safe area, sure. Um, but many, many families I know are having to make very difficult decisions on who cares for their child. And um, they may not 100% feel comfortable and confident with an individual, but just basically going off the whim of, well, at least my child isn't gonna die. If you look throughout the world, it, the only really successful child care uh, industries situations are ones that are subsidized, you know, in countries that are subsidized. That is not something that New Hampshire wants to hear. Um, but in in the countries where child care is readily available, where it enhances the, the workforce, um, and it, oftentimes it's in countries where because of their demographics, they recognized that they were below replacement population rates. They were going to struggle for labor force growth. So they had to do something um, in order to get more people into labor force. That just does not seem to be in the cards. But short of that, I just don't see the economics of childcare working very well. 
Um, if you push in one area by raising wages to get more people and increase capacity, you raise the cost, which eliminates the, you know, the availability for some groups. It's a really difficult problem. Yes, it really has. It has been for a long time. It's not just, it's not a recent like a phenomenon. No. It was happening before the pandemic, but it yeah. just got yeah. exacerbated yeah. to a point where it's really almost yeah. a, it's a policy issue for sure. And it's really... Um, something that, as Brian had mentioned, until we start to see kind of lower birth rates and, and kind of impacts on GDP and economic growth is really, uh, from a national level, I don't really see that changing um, at all because of just the way that our consumer economy is built. Um, yeah, I, I just want to go uh, go back a year or so when we had our last mid-year uh, discussion. And at the time, there was a war going on in Ukraine, and it had a major effect on everything in the economy. It helped, it helped really make the inflation become what it was last year. Uh, we still have a war in Ukraine. And I was struck by this the other day when that horrible explosion at the dam that just basically des destroyed just thousands and thousands and thousands of acres of uh, one of their of their prime agricultural land, and we saw last year when uh, the Russians tried to prevent uh, or were preventing uh, Ukrainian uh, agricultural products from being shipped. It really affected the prices of um, of commodities, well, food, and we also have seen that that also affected the price of energy. The war, so I'm trying to ask. I'm I'm asking this question: What? Uh, obviously, you know, it would be great if there was peace in Ukraine. So we could also just, you know, move on. But, you know, it, it doesn't seem like that's going to be happening in, for for a while. What do you think the effects are going to be ongoing? Is this is this something we should be really concerned about in terms of uh, uh, agricultural prices with, with what happened in Ukraine? This this. Uh, I, I, I do think agricultural prices will be more of an impact. I think remarkably um, energy markets um, have really handled the situation very well. And that's because of a very unique plan that I think gener was generated in the US to allow Russian oil to actually go onto the market, but cap the price at which um, anybody could pay in order to uh, to get that oil. So it you know had all of Russian oil as you know one of the largest oil producers in the world, had that oil been taken off the market, we would have seen much higher oil prices and thus basically said, you know, anybody who ships Russian oil, anybody who buys Russian oil, you cannot buy it uh, above a certain rate. And if you do, then you're going to, you know, we're going to uh, introduce sanctions. So it's kept that oil on the market. So I think that's stabilized. I think the, you know, particularly with this flooding situation that's affecting um, a section of, of the Ukraine, which is, you know, a heavy uh, uh, grain producer, um, I think that's going to be more problematic than, mm -hmm. than the oil situation. Europe has really handled the whole um, energy situation remarkably well and much better than we had anticipated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so if we if we if we take that, you know, as an as an assumption that that's accurate, that agricultural prices might rise, what does that mean for inflation then? It, so, will, it, will we see another spike in it, like we saw last last year? I think food prices, some food prices, um, remain, you know, stubbornly they they don't fall the way we would have expected them them to fall. Um, you know, I don't necessarily see an acceleration of of inflation. If it is, it would be modest. Um, but it, you know, we had all expected food prices to to decline. I had more rapidly, largely because of the energy component into getting uh, food, you know, to to the market, and that's again done by by trucks, which you know, the cost of diesel fuel. So um, that. You know that hasn't raised prices, but now there there will be uh, you know potentially an availability issue that could uh, keep those prices from falling. Right. Yeah, and I um I, I would agree um with the resistance on agriculture prices going forward. I do see them continuing to to stay 
above um, the norm and then if not trending a little bit higher. Um, I The U.S. is consistently involved in, in some war uh, on a historical basis and, and that's for, for numerous debatable reasons and I'm not going to go into that um, for my opinion. But in terms of the geopolitics of energy, I find that Alternative energy has become almost the black swan of the geopolitical field that we're in right now. And so we have OPEC that has always been the primary you know, pipeline for oil into the market. And that's a consortium of, of a very small group of countries and Russia um, included. And so when we have the war in Ukraine that occurred, there was, as Brian mentioned, a, a lot of changes based on not allowing for Russian oil to hit the market. Let's cap it, let's reduce it. And then what's China doing? We don't want China to buy Russian oil. Um, we don't want India to buy Russian oil, but we can't, you know, we can only control other economies based on the treaties that we have with them. Hmm. And so as long as we continue to rely on very few sources of energy, then we're going to continue to see um, increased prices with increased demand with very few alternative resources. And there's been a discussion based on the minerals and the um, commodities that are necessary to create alternative energy, whether that be solar, whether that be wind, whatever fill in the blank. Um, cobalt, lithium, you know, we know where some of those minerals come from, and they come from one of the most high conflict areas in the world. Um, and so there's a big discussion um, on a global scale that's happening in the UK, especially given the, the reliance on Russian oil, um, France particularly. Um, so how, you know, how do we do a, a change and shift from just relying on fossil fuels into alternatives? And so um, I do believe that um, we're, we're in that, um, but it's not, uh, it's not going to be, it's going to be decades. It's going to be decades before we actually start to see reliance on alternative energy from a point of global policy perspective, mm -hmm. where it actually makes a shift on the um, type of codependency that we have on OPEC and the, the whole oil market. Uh, and even now we're seeing, you know, commodity prices trade at their highest when it comes to oil. And the U.S., you know, we decided to release millions of barrels of oils oil from our reserve in order to reduce the price of oil. So that is what happened on a factual perspective. And then we began to export a lot more Texas crude and Brent. Um, so that's going to continue to happen. And we're going to, I think, continue to see the shifts in, in climate, which is, again, no one really wants to talk about too much, um, but it's real. And so I, I see um, I see alternative energy as being almost a black swan of the market. The U.S. is largely energy independent. It was before. Uh, if we did not export as much natural gas, if we didn't export as much uh, even oil, we would be largely energy independent now. Uh, regardless of what you think about fossil fuels, um, we were producing enough, just about enough. We didn't really need to import a lot. We imported, our number one import comes from Canada oil, and we did that because we exported to other places. Um, during the pandemic, when oil was, uh, you know, was harder to come by, we couldn't ramp up production because there was supply chain issues. Um, it's a very capital intensive, material intensive industry. So there was a lot of wells that were sitting there that could have been drilled that weren't being drilled. It's not a policy issue. It was simply a lack of supply, a lack of labor that kept us from producing more. So we could, if we wanted to be energy independent without um, renewables, big believer in renewables. I hope we go there quicker and as quickly as possible, but it's largely a decision about, you know, whether we export or whether we keep that uh, in the U.S. Uh, to meet our own needs. And to add to that also, when we talk about exports and imports, it's important for the fact to be put out there that many times those barrels are sold. And so we have agreements and treaties with other countries that we're required to fulfill. And so it doesn't, you know, we could have oil, uh, gas lines, prices here in the U.S. as we saw in 73. 
However, the oil that we pull out of the ground using hydropower, hydro, whatever, fill in the blank that, you know, it costs millions a year just to get the rigs in, um, those barrels are sold to other countries. And mm -hmm. so we have to make delivery on those. So it doesn't really, you know, so there's, uh, we have to put a little bit more context when we talk about the export and imports because we could be exporting to a, a classification that we may deem as independent, but that oil isn't coming back to our economy, that oil is being sold to other countries that we have treaties with. Well, you know, we only have a few minutes left and I, I want to get to, to the, the discussion of 2024, if we can, because I know, Brian, you mentioned your concern about 2024 yeah. and it, it seemed a little... Uh, yeah. No, I, I think about it too. So if you could, you know, could discuss that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think the concerns largely are that we pushed, you know, there was a time not very long ago when almost two, thir two thirds of economists thought we were going to be in recession uh, in 2023. I think that has been lowered. I was not among that two thirds, by the way. So I, again, not quite doing a victory lap, but uh, December 31st, 2023, and we're not in recession, you can count on that victory lap. Uh, but uh, we, you know, so we have the issue that's still out there, which is interest rates, which are affecting the cost for businesses. We have uh, a new issue that is partly due to that interest rate environment, but also, you know, there was a lot of hysteria over the banking situation based on the failure of some large banks. Um, I think the banking system overall is well capitalized and is healthy, but it's clear that credit is starting to be more costly and harder to come by. And that is the lifeblood of economic growth. And as that credit, you know, as businesses have more difficulty, either with the terms or the availability of credit, that will slow the economy. You combine that with a higher interest rate. There are some other things that are out there. Um, you know, we're going to see student loan payments start in September restart. Now that, you know, I've calculated how much that is in New Hampshire, how much outstanding debt. It's not a huge impact, but it will definitely take a dent out of people who largely are, you know, in a point in their lives when they're consuming a lot and saving little. So they'll have a little bit less to spend. So that will have um, some impact. Um, I think that the whole debt ceiling issue, while we dodge that bullet, there are some provisions in the agreement that could have some negative impacts in 2024 and beyond. We're gonna see some cutbacks um, in some areas of spending that, that you know, will have not, not enough to throw the economy into recession, but when you add all these things together, it could do it. I'm not, again, forecasting a recession, but there are those threats that are out there. And then there's always the threat of some international event. You know, all it takes, is a true energy crisis and that always will tip us into a recession. So um, we need to be really cautious. We're not out of the woods. I think we're increasingly out of the woods in 2023, but not in 2024. Yeah, so I do see some recessionary pressures that we've um, been discussing. I've, I've been um, on, on the vibe that we are in a recession and heading into a deeper recession towards the end of the year. Um, and that is going to be accelerated, uh, particularly as we start to see more declines on credit. Um, banks are readjusting their portfolios. Banks are taking losses. And so a lot of banks are no longer lending to some sleeves that they might be capped um, on their ability to take additional risks. So some banks are moving to a scoring that allows for some businesses to extend their lending relationship by not so much leaning on the credit, but that debt to, uh, debt to income ratio you know, can't be denied when we roll in the inflationary costs, the high credit charges, the debt service, and then um, student loans for some households. So um, certainly I, you know, the market's gonna do what it's doing. Um, I think heading into 2024, it's gonna be a real tough year. I mean, we're heading into um, another political cycle that we're seeing now, and we're heading into, um, again, banks are, are lending less, um, maybe more to some other businesses that are large corporations and well-capitalized, but even then, um, 
you know, a lot of banks, they're not taking the risks that they they were because we're not lending at a, you know, two, one percent, three percent, you know, they're being, you know, cut out at eight, nine percent. So um, most businesses and individuals are, have never really been in an environment that they've had to service such high rates. So um, I certainly um, don't see uh, us ending the year on a positive note. Now, do I think now in the stock market, I do think that the stock market will most likely um, end and continue to trend up as you know we've had that factored in, um, especially the NASDAQ after the year last year. Um, but for households and the economics, those being separate, you know, I think we're going to see more distributions as we've been seeing increasing out of retirement accounts for people to pay down their debt, just pay living expenses. And when we start to see that, which we're seeing, those are all huge red flags and those are going to continue to fold. So I don't, um, yeah, I don't see us ending the year. I think the end of 2024 might look promising into 2025. <laughs> Light at the end of the tunnel? I don't know. Well, anyway, I want to thank both of you. I, know I just have to say this as being an old guy. You know, we're talking about interest rates about 7 8%, and I'm still from the generation where you know, people were getting 18 or 19% mortgages in, in the uh, early 80s. So it's all relative, I think, but that's another matter. Anyway, I'd like to say thank you to everybody who, who's out there, and I want to say particularly thank you to Liz, 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 Liz Salas, and to Brian Gottlob for giving us their great insights on what's going on. And as I said, this is this has been recorded and it will be available at, at nhbr.com later this afternoon. If you want to look at it again or tell people to check out, check it out. Well, thanks very much for joining us. And thank you guys for, for sharing your, your insights with us. Thanks, Jeff. It was great to be here. Enjoy the weather. Yes. <laughs>